In 2003, a year before the infamous heist took place, Andy was beginning to dip his toes into a new world for him, art. He was chatting to one of his mates he knew from the illegal rave community, a world that he had elbowed his way into and became a big part of in the 1990s. And this mate happened to have just stumbled upon one of the 21st century's biggest new underground artists, which he believed was their next genuine golden goose. He says, but I have just bought a print by this guy. He says, he's, uh, I think he's going to be somewhat big. A guy called Banksy. And I'm like, what's that all about? Funny enough, my rave community were all involved in that as well. It was all part of the same family. So you knew people from the rave community that you were, you know, very much your people. Yeah. The new Banksy. Well, the new Banksy, or, or they were into Banksy. They'd be coming to Banksy shows and everything. You know, because he was on that underground culture. But that's also, I guess, the beginning of the feud. Well, yeah. It's yeah. when Banksy became your nemesis, right? Or, or you became Banksy's nemesis. I'm more Banksy's nemesis than he's mine. You know? What happened? I went to the ghetto sale in Covent Garden, I think it was 2003, and bought the print Flying Copper. Flying Copper features an image of an armed policeman with a cartoon smiley face and angel wings. It's typical of Banksy's known style the dominating figure of authority with a submachine gun in hand, which is offset by a childish cartoon face. It was both a nod to Acid House and the rave scenes Andy had also been a part of. At the time, Andy had the choice of buying two different versions of the print, a signed one for 150 quid or an unsigned one at half the price for 75. One thing we know about Andy by now is he's nothing if not well-connected. And it turned out he only had a few degrees of separation from the artist Banksy himself. In fact, he knew one of Banksy's crew. So he bought an unsigned print and asked his contact if he could give it to Banksy to sign for him. An innocent enough request on the surface. But what happened next would alter the course of Andy's life for the next two decades. So he asked him, I kept pestering him, he says, yeah, he's... He says, you can fuck off, you tight-ass northerner. You should have bought a signed print, right? Ooh. Yes. What? That's it. I'm Jake Warren, and from Podomo and Message Heard, this is Who Robs a Banksy? Andy is adamant it had nothing to do with money. If I were doing it for financial reasons... Fine, but so what? I didn't give a fuck because nobody knew this 75 print were going to be worth what they are today. Nobody. So 75 quid, 150 quid for fucking sake of a signature. And I thought, well, because he's a mate of a mate, I'll, he'll be able to sign nice one, Linky. That's all I wanted, you know, sign it nice one, Linky Banksy. But he took offence, he thought I was doing it for the finances. I didn't, re- and that's when I sent something went, you know what? This ain't right. Something wrong with this. If you're a fucking artist and one of your mates, mates, goes and buys a piece, of course you'll sign it for him. Why wouldn't you? But the truth is, what was a £75 price difference between the two prints back in 2003 has got just slightly wider. According to myartbroker.com, an unsigned version of Flying Copper 
now has an estimated value of 24,000 to 34,000 pounds. Meanwhile, a signed version can go for anything between 30,000 to 90,000. With the beauty of hindsight, what was a mere 75 quid saving has become a near 60 grand mistake. Yep, I reckon you'd be fuming too. But Andy insists that all he was after was a personalised message, which in the art world might actually devalue the print rather than add to it. In Andy's mind, this was bigger than money. It was a favour denied and a personal shunning. And in the end, Andy ended up with nothing but a bruised ego. He's got a big heart, Andy. He'd do anything for you. Yeah, he's, he's crazy, he's mad in a good way. But if you crossed him, he'd be like, cut you off. Rosalia has known Andy for over 20 years, so knows all too well how this might have affected him. And he'd probably just thought, fuck you. <laughs> and yeah, took any opportunity to start this feud. But I mean, Banksy could have signed it, but he chose not to. So this was the start of the feud that Andy had spent the last two decades waging. You may well be thinking, that's it? Banksy didn't sign your print and you think a measured response is to kidnap one of his statues in broad daylight? It feels like maybe just a teeny tiny bit of an overreaction. But as I got to know him, I did really believe Andy when he said it wasn't about the money for him. I mean, he was offended. He was offended. He was put out. You know, it doesn't cost anybody to have a, to, to sign something, but, you know... Like I say, he'd do anything for you, but yeah, if, I think if, if you double-crossed him, he'd he'd have something to say about it or do about it. Each time I've spoken to Andy, the story of what Banksy allegedly said to him changes a little. Obviously, we talked a little bit about before kind of the motivation of, you know, Banksy basically calling you a cheap northern bastard when you, uh, you know... I think the word was not... <laughs> I think it was a C word. <laughs> <laughs> but the core essence is always the same. Really, it all comes down to one thing. Respect. What matters is, when you break it down, Banksy personally insulted Andy's character and brought up negative stereotypes that he's had thrown in his face his whole life. If the rumours that Banksy is this sort of well-to-do, well-educated, middle-class character and most of the people who were making a splash at the time in street art weren't like that. They were working class. You know, it was a very different kind of hand style, graffiti kind of story that they'd struggled with. Then there might be a bit of class warfare as much as anything else. This is an interesting point to bring into this story. We don't know much about Banksy. The whole being anonymous thing makes that tricky. But as Matilda says, there are still rumours about his upbringing. And so Banksy bringing up Andy's proud northern roots in such a disparaging way would certainly have stirred something in him. Andy's hustling, his childhood, his involvement in all these iconic subcultures, and really his motivation can be boiled down to something that I'm sure lots of us will relate to. Sometimes someone just really pisses you off. And how many times have you wished you could get your own back? Well... Andy is the kind of person who doesn't just fantasise about it, he gets off his ass and does it. His childhood and upbringing were potentially, if we believe the rumours, 
pretty contrasting to that of Banksy. And so to understand this relationship between Andy and Banksy, we need to go back to 1961, the year Andy was born. I'm sort of a lock keeper. Uh, my father worked on, for British Waterways. This is the thing with me, I'm on the cusp of everything. I'm neither one nor the other. Where we lived was classed as Dewsbury, but I was lived in, you know, I went to schools in, in, in Osset, which is part of Wakefield. So, you know, I could only have a doctor in Dewsbury, which were up hills. It was just very difficult and odd. But we lived in the big, big middle of what was the biggest goods yard, railway yard in Europe, a place called Healy Mills, which was a colossal railway yard. And we moved there when I was three years old. To go to school, I had to walk a mile and a half up a hill and I'd get halfway up the hill and come out of the smog. So I lived in, in, in soot for a lot of time in my childhood. You know, it was, it was literally, you, you, could, you could stand at the top of the, top of my school and look down the big hill and you could see this big fog as it followed the river, but it was also full of, you know, God, God knows what comes out of them factories. But yeah, it was definitely something a scene from a Lowry. By the time Andy was a young kid, England was in the midst of political and social upheaval. The north of England in particular had been the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. It's where most of the factories, coal mines and thick smog was so well captured on canvas by the artist L.S. Lowry, who Andy just mentioned. But by the late 60s, a different energy culture based on cheap imports from abroad saw coal production in the UK go into freefall. The mines in the north of England were starting to close, tearing apart communities and leaving thousands upon thousands of northerners out of a job and on the scrap heap themselves. By 1972, the miners were on an official strike for the first time since 1926. In 1974, a three-day working week was in effect. Inflation was huge, and for normal working-class families, it was an extraordinarily tough existence to just get by. My parents weren't good parents, we'll put it that way. My sister was seven years older than me and she used to bully me rotten. So I never felt I never felt part of anything. I also, where we lived, the nearest friend was over a mile away. Isolating. Totally isolated, yeah. It was like nobody could hear me scream. That's, that was my thing. Nobody, if, you know, if, when I got a kick in, nobody could hear it. You know, my arm, which I cried. Hearing about Andy's childhood made me see him in a new light. I'd met him a few times by this point, and he'd always come across as strong, positive and resourceful. He wasn't keen to dig too deep into his family life, but from what he told me, I felt he was holding back. Even this small glimpse was tough to hear. So Andy grew up perhaps feeling inadequate, unwanted even, and living in an area with very few opportunities to really make something of himself. And then, in 1979, Margaret Thatcher, one of the most polarising figures in British politics, was elected Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. She'd be elected a further two times, and it's impossible to understate the huge effect Thatcherism would have over this country for the next 11 years. But Andy, by now 17 has other things to worry about. He's about to get thrown out of his home by his parents. Why did they throw you out? Uh, I was at court for criminal damage, uh, graffiti in a police cell. And we used to have this, uh, it was called the Mushroom, it was like a shelter in the middle of the little Osset town centre, a small village. And I graffitied it, but Linky was here, right? (laughs) 
as you do, that's early, 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 early graph years. Classic. They arrested me, I did, and I denied all knowledge of it. Anyway, they held me in the cells. Well, and I was in a, and it was a proper Victorian police station. The old plaster and the bars on the window. It was, it was a disgrace. And uh, so I decided, fuck you, you then. If you're nicking me for it, I'll, so I did the whole fuck, down to the plaster, took the plaster back to the brickwork. Wow. So of course I <laughs> couldn't really plead not guilty to one. <laughs> so, so that made the pre- that made the it made uh, a calendar or look north or whatever you know the local news at six o'clock and it came over as Eric Link. My name's Eric Andrew. And my parents never used the Eric because it was my father's name. And of course, my dad went fucking mental. Says right, that's you. Oh, because they would have assumed it was him. Yeah, I'm not having my name brought into disrespute. So. So yeah, that's that was what that's why I got thrown out at the 17, 18, 17, I think I was. So Andy left home and decided to strike out on his own. But as the old saying goes, you can take the man out of Yorkshire, but you can't take the Yorkshire out the man. And despite a difficult upbringing, he still always remained proud of where he's from, Wakefield, affectionately known as Shaky Wakey. Everyone from Wakefield mental, so it's on a ley line with Reykjavik, somewhere in sort of South America. It's like the, the maddest place in the world. They're so proud of their city, their town or whatever even it is. Gilly is a long-term friend of Andy's, or Linky, as Gilly mostly calls him. Can you describe Linky in a sentence? He's a force of nature, really, and that's a bit of a cliched description of anyone, but when you meet him, you don't forget him. You can see the horror on people's faces when, when they first encounter him. And then slowly that melts and there's something quite charismatic about him, but not in a charming way. There's something that kind of like people can't resist. When we asked Gilly what he did, as well as mentioning his journalism and photography, he summed himself up as... General Operationals Coordinator for Linking and his art thievery. But Gilly and Andy met long before the world of art heists. They got to know each other over 30 years ago as fans of the same football team. I was a Bradford White, he was a Wakefield White. We used to kind of run together or stand together, depending on who we were fighting. (laughs) Leeds United, a football team based in, rather unsurprisingly, the major northern city of Leeds, are colloquially known as the Whites because they play in an all-white kit and they're renowned for having some of the most passionate, devoted fans in the whole of the UK. In the 70s, they were living through a golden era. They won countless trophies under manager Don Revy as their famously rough style of play reflected their hard-as-nails supporters on the pitch. You can see why someone like Andy would be enamoured. Throughout the VHS tapes that Andy gave us, Leeds United comes up again and again. In the documentary Swingers, for instance, about Andy's open relationship with his ex-wife Fiona, Andy and Fiona are being interviewed in a fetish club. He's in a short-sleeved top, which, upon closer inspection, can be seen to be a rubber version of a football shirt. But not just any old football shirt. This is sadly not something found in the club shop but a custom-made homage to his beloved Leeds United. You two look absolutely incredible tonight. You have got the outfits of the evening award from me. This happens to be a kind of Leeds United strip. <laughs> absolutely. I, I had it done uh, especially for the opening night of my club and I, all my friends were very dubious because I'm on this scene. They're really nervous about 
what I was going to wear. They all knew I was opening the club and they was like, I told them I was having a rubber outfit made. Well, with being a Leeds fan, coming from Leeds, it was the only choice I could make. And it's, it's total perversion. I'll be honest, I can't see me rushing out to get my own team's shirt made out of rubber. But Andy's love of Leeds United really did impact every area of his life, including his relationship. Bastards, Man United have won 3 0. Bastards. You care so much about our relationship. Oh, our relationship you? is but really important. Come on, it's come on, Leeds. I told you that one. I always told you that when we first yes. got together. I yes. told you that, you know, no matter what, no matter what we go through, don't ever try and come between me and Leeds. Because at the end of the day, I've loved Leeds since the day I was born, and I'll love Leeds till the day I die. There's no matter, there'll be no change, and they will always come first. If you ever ask me to make a decision, you are the or the or Leeds, I would always choose Leeds deliberately on the fact that you know what I mean because you're asking no, for that no, no, choice. No, 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 like, yes, love, you can get down off your soapbox. I'm now. not on my soapbox. You are. Just, you are. Just making you're that plain. Pontificating <laughs> about football. Is it? Aren't you? It's more important than our relationship. Yes, I will take it. But at this time, supporting Leeds United, or any football team for that matter, didn't just mean a nice day out to the stadium to cheer on your team. It was so anti-establishment being a football fan that when I got my when I first had a job, I didn't tell people what I did at the weekend. I did not say I was a Leeds fan. I'd worked at this advertising agency and we're like, what did you do at the weekend? I wouldn't say I went and smashed up Sheffield or something like that. Because that's what everyone everyone was a hooligan. Everyone every, the whole it was a kind of it was a very working class, male-dominated, kind of violent, but you know, it's kind of what it isn't now, basically. It wasn't something you could boast about in, in, in sort of middle-class circles until football was gentrified and Sky TV came in and sort of made it something that, you know, the masses, uh, the middle-class masses would talk about. Nobody would admit to being a Chelsea fan or admit to being a Leeds fan. Leeds United was and still is like a religion for so many young Yorkshiremen. They even have a salute. Make a fist with your right arm. Place the thumb edge of the fist on your heart. Extend your arm fully outwards and slightly upwards. They do this when they come across each other. But back then, this passion often spilled over into violence. Really horrible violence, actually. And this type of organised violence between football fans was something that in the UK is usually called football hooliganism. The different groups of hooligans are known as firms. And around this time, there was a different firm for pretty much every major football club in existence throughout the UK. The Leeds United firm was called the Leeds Service Crew, named after the public service trains that the firm would travel on to get to away matches. The alternative were the specially organized match trains that were always heavily policed. Hooliganism was part and parcel of football, and that slightly tainted legacy is still felt throughout modern football today. For instance, if you're after a flat, cheap lager in a plastic cup whilst watching a game, you'll be disappointed. Because in England and Wales in 1985, the consumption of alcohol in the stands or even any stadium areas with views of the pitch was banned, specifically to curb hooliganism and violence. In fact, in Scotland, you haven't been able to drink anywhere in football grounds since 1980. I was probably more into the clothes and the trainers and the kind of like, you know, the kind of... The beating people up. Being in a gang. Yeah, it's absolutely. It, it was kind of like, more like... I'd been a punk. I'd been, in this, you know, into, into ska music. I'd been into all sorts of stuff, you know. And that was another sort of place to belong. Probably I needed a family. It's tribal. 
It wasn't necessarily inflicting pain and damage on people. It was about territory. It's about standing on their on their patch and going, where are you? We've took you. You know, if you want to take us out, we'll have a go. But it was all it was all about it wasn't so much about hurting people. That sense of belonging to something greater than yourself can't be denied. Especially at a time when so many young working class people were feeling disenfranchised and excluded from society and left on the scrap heap. But we can't sugarcoat this. Football hooliganism in the 70s and 80s in the UK was notoriously brutal, prejudiced and violent. And the lead service crew were famed as one of the hardest of the lot. Gilly told us a story that really highlights the mood at the time. It concerns someone called Peter Sutcliffe, who you may know better as his moniker, the Yorkshire Ripper. He was a serial killer who targeted women in the mid to late 70s, with many of his victims being sex workers. It took the police five years to put Sutcliffe behind bars. When the Ripper was um, at large, Lee's fans, they, did a, they, put, they played a tape of the Ripper, the fake Ripper voice. I don't know if you've ever heard it. So, but no. there's, there's, somebody sent a tape in saying, I'm, I'm the Ripper, and they played it at the stadium. And the Leeds fans hated the police so much, they started chanting, you'll never catch the Ripper. But yeah. I, I know, it's insane. I tell people that story, they just don't believe it. And they were like, they're going like, um, Ripper 12, coppers nil. It's just unbelievable to sort of think we were in that kind of like, um, that, there was, the hatred for the police was so much, they didn't want them to catch a serial killer. And I can see your, your jaw dropping there because it, it was very them and us. They mm. treated you like animals. Everyone acted like animals. That was what Jack Charlton said once. If you treat people like animals, they act like animals. So it was kind of a, you know, mm. it's unrecognisable. You would not. You couldn't even go back and look at it. Even the footage just doesn't do it justice. This is a completely shocking story to hear. The anger towards police was so extreme at the time that football fans were supporting a serial killer, one who was targeting women in a truly horrific way. It really shows the attitude towards police, which at the time was reaching boiling point. And while he claimed it wasn't so much about inflicting pain, in one of his VHSs, we found a special report on the violence from Leeds United fans abroad, which of course features Andy himself. They fight different to us. We'd have fought with bottles and boots and, and fists. They were pulling out machetes and clubs and, you know what I mean? They're different, different type. Different type of fighting to what we're used to. We'll be prepared for it next time, though. Andy's morality is something I'm constantly battling with. The Andy I was meeting in the present day was a carefully curated personality that I liked and warmed to. I respected his grit his determination and his sense of respect. But those traits clearly have also been utilised to do some pretty bad things, things I'm not sure I entirely agree with. Andy is also amazing at putting the things he's done, the perhaps less savoury things, into context. He explained that there was an important side to football hooliganism that exists beyond the violence and the fighting, even beyond the football. You've got to remember, you can't put it. You cannot put all this into perspective without realizing the political climate of the time. These were the dark satanic days of Thatcher. The dark days of Toryism were fucking disgusting. We had nothing. You were treated like shit, no matter what you did. You know, it was hard to climb out of the out of the gutter. 
they were happy to kick you back in continuously. So it was our way of fighting against the system. You know, it, we don't we didn't realise it then. We were thought we were just being, you know, what we were. We were the hardest firm in England, or so we thought. I'm not saying it's true, but I'm not saying it's not true. <laughs> you know, you bring it fucking on if you want West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's that kind. You know, it was that kind of, and and you had a camaraderie and a loyalty that you know. And then you'd go out around town if anybody said it, you give them a fucking slap. But these were the, de- the that's what it was like. Back then, Andy was finding it hard to climb out the gutter. In Wakefield, he was working in a beer can factory. The system was bad, and he became even more deeply disillusioned by it. My first wage was £19.95p, right? And the gyro was £17.50. When Andy says gyro, he's referring to the unemployment checks that would be given by the government. And for Andy, he didn't quite understand why it made sense to work all those hours just for £2.50 more than he would get on benefits. And it was like, you've got to have a job, lad. You can't go anywhere if you don't work hard. You'll never go anywhere. Well, my father had worked hard, hard all his life and he had never had a pot to piss in. You know, so I, and I always looked at that as if I ain't going to grow up like you. So we started looking for other opportunities and it turned out it was probably a wise move for him to start looking for those opportunities outside of Yorkshire. As the same personality that had attracted him to football hooliganism was clearly causing him some problems. I left Wakefield because, you know, there was a price on me, really. Love buy coppers and buy some local thugs and stuff, so it was, you know, time to leave. Oh dear, what did you do to get out uh, I, I used to fight a lot, you know, I used mm. to go out and I was a, I was a hooligan and a bit of a thug. I'm not going to deny it, you know. Mm. I, I, I wasn't nasty, but I had a short temper 99% of the time. I never slapped somebody unless they fucking deserved it, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, that's how I always looked at it. His logic doesn't really excuse what he was doing, but it's interesting that it seems Andy too finds himself grappling with his disreputable past. So Andy made his way to London in 1987, pretty much in the dead of night. You kind of skipped town. Almost. Yeah, yeah, just did a moonlight. Just yeah. patted me bag and fucked off. Mm. Emptied the flat, just never, never had to be noticing, just went, just vanished from Wakefield. Wow. So Hackney is yeah. where you turned up at. Yeah, what a place. Which is it was ironically a... where we are at now. Yeah. But it's changed. Yeah, ain't it? the same. You fucking know where we are now. You wouldn't dare go round here on a night, man. It was, it was Hackney. When I moved to Hackney, I I used to say it was dogs on string and uh, weekend haircuts because yeah. it was punky and scrutty. And now it's labradoodles and wax mustaches. You know, it's gone from that to this. It's and blokes that look like me. <sighs> <laughs> you really have an issue with yourself with me, don't you? <laughs> don't. <laughs> no need for that, not at all. In the year Andy found himself in Hackney, East London, the name Banksy hadn't entered the mainstream yet. Just as Hackney would change between 1987 and now, so would Andy's life. He had no idea what was coming for him over the next few decades, from throwing an illegal rave that caused the biggest mass arrest in UK history to over a year spent in prison, to the feud with Banksy himself. But we need to start thinking about the other side of the coin to the feud, the other major player in our story, the man, the myth, the legend, Banksy himself. This villain's origin story of the signature all started with Banksy, 
and what he may or may not have said to Andy to set off this almost far-fetched chain of wacky events. I mean, does he even remember this interaction from years ago? It could have meant absolutely nothing to him and faded from memory entirely. It also feels fairly ridiculous just how much of my working day I'm now spending trying to get in touch with probably the most famous anonymous person in the world. I mean, not being traceable is kind of his entire shtick, but we couldn't give up just yet. And the cold email we sent to pest control, Banksy's official office, seemingly got us nowhere. But thankfully, there was someone else I could speak to. Have you ever met Andy Link? Of course, I've met Andy Link. <laughs> Who hasn't met Andy Link in the Banksy world and the street art world? Robin Barton is an art dealer specialising in Banksy's. In fact, throughout our chat, I started to get the unnerving sense that he could be closer to Banksy than he was letting on. The only way you would ever get a comment out of Banksy on something like this is if you had something, you held an ace card that he needed to react to, and Andy Link isn't that. So I basically, I, I don't, I'm lacking an ace up my sleeve. Well, you can get on a flight over to Hollywood, you can go to his house and knock on the door and you might be pleasantly surprised. Doorstep Banksy in Hollywood. Doorstep Banksy in Hollywood, why not? Have you got the address? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe that's what I have to do. I'm willing to do that. Well, you know Moby. Yeah. Yeah, well, Banksy bought Moby's castle from him. So you think if I actually went up and rang the doorbell and said, hello, my name's Jake and would like a comment from Banksy. That's You might respect the fact that I've come all the way from England to I do think, it. Yeah, I think that's your best shot. So going through PR, going through pest control, going through people that going know Going through him. pest control is like into the void. <laughs> now, sure, I wouldn't mind a little all-expenses-paid trip to Hollywood just to knock on what is allegedly Banksy's front door. Who wouldn't? But it's probably a last resort. And really, to me, it feels like it may be crossing some kind of boundary. I don't want to out Banksy or doorstep him to force some kind of answer out of him. But it turns out we did have an ace up our sleeve. For a little detective work and sweet talking, me and my producer B had managed to find another route in. We wanted to update the rest of the team. Okay. Yes, so obviously we emailed Pass Control. Mm-hmm. How'd that go? Um, no response. Well, we got a bounce back email um, saying that we would hear something soon if there was a response that needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, chased up on that and there's still been nothing. How many people do you reckon email that email address? Well, yeah. It's and like also, all the weirdos, isn't mm-hmm. it? I yeah. mean, maybe we count as the weirdos as well. I think yeah. Um, but we do have another lead, which is good. Oh. Yeah, we managed to get uh, through underhanded and begging Oh, and managed to get uh, email address and phone numbers of his official PR representation, or at least at some point, his mm-hmm. official PR representation. Don't know if they still are, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a step closer than like, here is a blank email address that anyone can Google on the internet. So what's the next step? So I have emailed the email contact that we were given. That was a couple of days ago. I still haven't heard anything back. But we were told by our source that... Super secret source. (laughs) That um, if you contact them, they will put it in front of Banksy. Mm. That is what we've been told. 
Whether that's true or not, I guess we'll find out. But we, we were assured that there would be an answer, but I think wow. potentially the next step is to give the number a call. What the fuck do I say? <laughs> Can Hi. you imagine if it's just Banksy? <laughs> yeah, it's just Banksy. Like Banksy here. <laughs> yep. And I also feel, I mean, any comment really at this point is good. I just want to know, I want to know what he's thinking. Um, but our source also did tell us that when they mentioned this to the PR people, they kind of did a bit of a eye roll and said, oh, not another feud. Mm. So this seems like it's a, a staple in Banksy's life. Um, artists. But, but the only difference I would say to that is this is the first feud. It's like a kind of, you know, one of those terrible Marvel films. You know, everyone has an origin story and everyone has a nemesis in those films, you know, when they're nobody. And this kind of feels like it's that. Mm-hmm. But is that true or not? Guess we'll find out. Over to you, Maxie. Oh, Christ. <laughs> From Podomo and Message Heard, this has been Who Robs a Banksy? It was hosted by me, Jake Warren, and written and produced by B. Duncan. The music was composed by Tom Biddle, with sound design by Blue Posner and production support from Harry Stott. The sound engineer is Ivan Eastley. The story editor and executive producer for Message Heard is Sandra Ferrari. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White.